This is the Equip Podcast hosted at Rocky Creek in Greenville, South Carolina. This weekly course seeks to equip our church for the work of ministry. Hope it will help you as well. Uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. We're going to be there in a few moments. Um, and uh, so this is week two in our Divided States of America that we're going to look at. Uh, and the goal is tonight as we study through this passage uh, and the next few weeks, we're going to be going through this series um, for leading up and probably the week after election. Uh, and then the plan is, uh, if unless the Lord changes, yeah, prayer meeting, that's right, we're going to have prayer meeting, yeah. Uh, just so you know, I have uh, scheduled that Daniel chapter 9 would be around the election week, which is a corporate repentance prayer for the nation. Okay, so uh, that'll be something that we'll do as a, as a group. Um, but also, uh, as we start looking in the next few weeks in Daniel, there's a lot of end times kind of visions and all that kind of stuff. And we'll be navigating that uh, in the morning time as how Daniel saw it. But probably this time we'll also be unpacking a little bit of that. But the next few weeks we're going to continue on this. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about the pressure of popularity and, and the danger of wanting to fall in line with what's the most popular message of the day. Uh, and as you go along there in the notes, with increasing pressure uh, to fall into particular political camps, how are Christians supposed to navigate faithfully? We cannot give into any cultural system, no matter how widely accepted it is, uh, if it contradicts the truths of Scripture. So as we look at it, we realize this. Um, I remember and imagine most of you remember different times where it was more accepted or popular to be a Christian or to at least be a real Christian than what it is today, right? So now uh, instead of seen as the light or the good folks or the people who were trying to do good to society, actually, if you listen to most people, being a faithful Christian to the Bible is actually about the worst type of evil that you can do in the United States of America right now. You have realized that, right? It is not that you just like you believe differently. That This is believing in something that is actually detrimental to all the people. So if we look at what the problem is, uh, as we go down through our notes, here's the first thing I want you to know. Authentic followers of God are typically the ones holding the minority opinion throughout history, right? That is a reminder for us to have, and I, and I mention that a lot of times, but when you look at the pages of Scripture, that authentic followers of God are typically the ones holding the minority opinion throughout history. So if we look through the pages of Scripture, uh, we see God's people, uh, obviously Adam and Eve, and going forth. Uh, the book of Exodus centered in God's people in what nation, everybody? Remember? It was Pharaoh leading Egypt, right? Was that a culture that was very advantageous to following the scriptures? <laughs> no, not, not close to it. Um, if we look through it, and then all of a sudden the people get out of Exodus and uh, out of Egypt, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they come into Canaan, right? The land flowing of milk and honey, the promised land of what they went for. And they went there, and things were going good all for about two days, right? Okay? And then all of a sudden a lot of what they did and followed changed, and what should be the promised land started looking like the other nations around them, Right? And then when their sin got so bad, uh, they, they established a nation, and they established kings, and because the sin continued, what happened to that kingdom? It got split right down the middle, and Israel and Judah, and they got separate and got different position, and then ultimately the exile took place, right? They're removed from it. And you look at the book of Judges. What was Judges about? I skipped over Judges. Judges is enemy nations coming in, enemy nations, and these people having to follow. How do you follow God in the midst of it? In the time of Jesus and the disciples, what empire are they under during their time? The Roman Empire. That was not very advantageous for Christians either, was it? It was very difficult, very challenging. And so, honestly, for most of our lives in this room, um, we have been somewhat spoiled, at least when it comes to this. Can we say that right? 
that for a lot of our lives, we have seen it, that it was a popular, pleasing message. I'm not saying that people always followed it to the letter of the law, but being a Christian was seen as something noble and worthwhile. Being a person of faith was something that's seen in the culture as something good to society. That is not the case right now. So honestly, we're kind of falling into a category that I believe that a lot of the world has experienced for most of their adult life. All, all of what they've ever experienced. And so when, when you realize that, you, you have to go, okay, to, even compared to what we're experiencing right now, it's a shock to the system. But if you go to places like China right now, this is nothing compared to what they're going through, what they've been through. Uh, if you go to places like Sudan or Niger or Nigeria, different places like that, it's nothing compared to what those people are going through. They would think, oh, this is a problem for y'all? Huh, this is nothing. And I even think, okay, that even if you were to look at the, uh, as we talked about last week, all the kind of shock and awe of what the political debates have been the last few weeks, I guarantee old Darius and Nebuchadnezzar could probably throw one down too if they wanted to, okay? Like, this is not unique. We're prideful. Sometimes people are put in positions of authority and don't represent what God would have them to do well. So with this, I need us to remind ourselves that sometimes following God is the minority position. And just because something is popular does not mean it is right. Okay? How many of you have ever told that to your children? Uh, just a few times in your life? Yeah, right? It, it happens a lot where you have to remind people over and over and over again. Just because something is popular does not mean it is right. So if we were to think through what's going on in our culture today, what is the popular message regarding sexuality? Is it the biblical message? No, not a chance. So the popular message as, as related to gender, is that the biblical message? No. There's so many things that are popular and accepted that honestly it's not right. It's not correct. It is something that is actually against what Scripture is. And so right now it is very popular to hold to a form of Christianity, but not true Christianity. Just because it's popular, just because people are going after it, does not mean it's the right thing to do. And we must be aware of the tendency to adapt our beliefs to align with the culture. We have to be very careful that we don't find ourselves adapting our beliefs, moving and changing what we believe to adapt within what is expedient and work for the culture itself. There is a pressure, and I really do believe this, that to be able to say, hey, just like King Darius. Yeah, you can have your faith as long as it comes through me. As long as it's channeled my direction, everything's fine, but it's got to come through us. In China, it's like this. Uh, the underground church has their full Bible of 66 books. But if you're above ground, if you're going to be in a church that's accepted by the state, that Bible is not all the way there. You're missing some chunks of it. That feels dangerous to the society. So, yeah, you can have your faith as long as it comes through us, right? And, and this is something that we have to be careful of in, in our context. Um, do you see, uh, if, if we even look at both of our party system in the United States of America, do you see Democrats and Republicans alike adapting beliefs to align with culture? Yes. Wanting to hold to a form of godliness, but denying the power. I want to have a form of it. I want to be close enough to it, but ah, this isn't exactly right. So... Um, I will get calls, and, and had one this week from somebody who said, hey, could you get on a call with this political figure this week? This person is kind of worried about what's going on in the polls and wants to know if you could kind of help support this thing from the pulpit and help make sure you do your stuff. And I'm going, it's not my job to do. Uh, and, and it's going, and, and what is this? Hey, scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's what it is. And you just don't think that kind of stuff happens in Greenville, South Carolina? You'd be surprised, right? And it's not from what you would think it would be. It's, it's really not. And it's careful that you don't start 
allowing yourself to adapt beliefs to align with the culture. Uh, right now, if you look at the religious talking head, heads that CNN will typically put up, or even Fox News will put up, a lot of times they are speaking on behalf of somebody and they're turning a blind eye to at least some part of something they're supporting. And sometimes you feel like, hmm, you're stretching that one right there, okay? You're, you're twisting that Bible verse there right there, and yet it's happening all over the place. And so what I want to look at is this prophet uh, that is a uh, prophet that, uh, honestly, he's not one of the top prophets that we talk about in Scripture, but I think this uh, story is fantastic and so uh, helpful for us. And, and so as we're going here, this, this prophet's name is Micaiah, okay? Uh, looks like Micah that somebody misspelled, but it's Micaiah. Um, and once again, he's not Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah, one of those main ones. But his story is so incredible what took place. And so just to give you a synopsis of what we're going to look at, um, in 1 Kings chapter 22, we're going to be studying for a moment, that when a prophet was provoked by political pressure and a popular position, he resolved to stay faithful to God above anything else. Okay, This is what Micaiah's story is all about. He is actually provoked by political pressure, which we know about today, and also a popular position. Both of those were not going along with what biblical faith was, and Micaiah had a decision to make. Is he going to sort of fall in line with what the political party wants him to do, or is he going to stay faithful to God? So um, I'm going to go through this, and let me give you just a brief synopsis. So this is the time in Israel's history. Israel and Judah are separated, okay? They're, they're split. Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. JJ, okay. Jehoshaphat's king of Judah. Ahab is the king of Israel, okay. We, we know Ahab, right? Not normally a typical guy that we would say, that's who you want to be like, kind of, kind of rough king. Uh, Ahab and Jehoshaphat had kids who married each other. So even though they're kings of neighboring nations, they kind of, uh, they, they get together at Christmas time, okay. So they're, they're having some time together. Jehoshaphat knows Ahab's a little crazy, but because of the family connections and the political associations, he kind of has to endure with some of this stuff. And so what's taking place is, at this time, Ahab is wanting Jehoshaphat to help him come against Syria. He wants him to go to war with him. And he said, I need your help. And since we're buddies, since we're family, I need your help. And Jehoshaphat knows that Ahab's a little crazy. And so what does he ask of him? He says, I want you to talk to God about this to make sure we're doing the right thing. Right? Just make sure you're inquiring of the Lord to do this. So uh, let's start, we'll go in verse 1. It says, For three years Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. That's Ahab. Verse 3, And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of, of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Okay, this is sounding good so far. Verse 5, And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Stop for a second. How many prophets said that? Did you catch? 400 prophets. He's asked 400 prophets in his nation. Should I go to battle? And they go, oh, the Lord is with you, King Ahab. You go, boy. Man, nobody can touch you. The Lord is with you. You absolutely have all right to do it. Now listen to what Josephat says in verse 7. Is there not here another prophet of the Lord who we may inquire? Is there anybody else? 
Because this sure does seem like a lot of yes men right now. And is there anybody else in your kingdom that we could talk to? Listen to this, verse 8. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Well, there you go. Does that give a little warning of why I don't like this guy? I, listen, 400 are saying yes. Don't bother this guy. Why? I hate him. I hate him. He's always being mean to me, always telling me stuff that I need to change and do. I don't want to listen to him. He's looking for prophets who tickle his ears, folks. Right? He's looking for people who will say exactly what he wants to hear and spin it with a religious context on it. So I got 400. Joseph had, don't worry about it. But he goes, is there anybody else? Yeah, but I hate this guy. I hate him. And, and so listen to what Jehoshaphat said. He goes, let not the king so, say so. He's going, surely he can't be that bad, right? Verse 9, then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. Okay, where are they sitting? Sitting on thrones, arrayed. They're, they just look very regal here. All 400 prophets prophesying. You got this, guys. You can do it. You can do it, right? Verse 11. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramath Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So, this is an amazing situation because if you were to think about you're a king and you have 400 holy men who have supposedly sought the Lord and giving you the word that you want to hear, you should think, hey, I'm good. And Jehoshaphat's smart enough to go, I don't know. I've never seen 400 people being the same about anything, okay? And especially something this close. Are you sure you've really heard from the Lord or have you heard from people who want to placate what you want to do? You sure? And he goes, there's one guy out there, but I can't stand him because he always is, it just sounds like a kid. He's always mean to me, right? It's like he never lets me hear what I want to hear. Uh, prideful leaders surround themselves with religious sounding people who provide spiritual platitudes devoid of biblical backing. This has happened in the days of Micaiah, Jehoshaphat and Ahab, and folks, it happens today as well. People, prideful leaders surround themselves, and I think a lot of them like to surround themselves with religious sounding people. Hey, that sounds good. The Lord's doing this. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what I want to hear. They, they surround themselves with religious-sounding people who provide spiritual platitudes. It sounds really good what they're saying. Sounds good spiritual lingo, right? Sounds very noble. Sounds very godly. I feel better about what we're doing, but it's devoid of biblical backing. Folks, have you ever known somebody who sounded very spiritual but was really not in touch with the Lord? You ever known somebody who knows all the lingo to say, right? And you go, I just don't know. Something's off. And here we have a case of a king who has surrounded himself with 400 of his best prophets all saying the right thing, except for it's not the right thing. God has not told that's that God is not saying that's the wisest thing to do, as we're going to learn here in the next little bit. And in fact, something is so wrong with this situation. And I think if we're going to apply this into our own lives, we've got to realize this. We must beware of the tendency to adapt our eternal beliefs to align with the temporal culture. Micaiah as we're going to see in a moment, is not going to adapt what he believes is right to allow himself to be accepted by a culture that is temporary. Folks, the, the issues that we're having, the things that they're debating about, the things that our country is torn over is this. 
We are trying to figure out whether or not God's word is true and eternal rather than our opinions in this temporal culture should tri- uh, triumph over that. If you think about it this way, um, I had somebody send me a message recently and said, you know, you talk a lot about family discipleship and I've heard you preach on it and you write on it. And I just think that's wrong. I said, what's wrong? They said, family discipleship. I said, why? I think that what you need to do is just raise your kids to allow them to choose whatever they want to do. And I said, well, they can choose whatever they want to do, but I'm just training them and teaching them in the way that way I live, right? I just feel like that's the best way. And they're like, I don't do that. I said, yes, you do. They go, no, I do not. I said, yes, you do. They said, you don't know how I raise my kids. And I said, I guarantee this, you are teaching them the doctrine that you think is the most appropriate for their lives. No, I'm not. I'm teaching them that there is no doctrine that's appropriate for their lives. Like I said, you are teaching them the doctrine that you think is most appropriate for their lives. You have just proven to me you're indoctrinating your kids with something. And they're like, no, I'm not. I'm not telling them that they've got to listen to a book all their life and they've got to listen to these commands. I said, no, no, no. But you're telling them they're the God of their own life and they determine what's right and what's wrong. That's what you're teaching them. So yeah, I'm teaching a worldview to my kids, and they can choose to accept it. They can choose to walk away from it. And you're teaching a worldview to your kids. I'm teaching my kids that there was a tree in a garden that said, if you eat of it, you will die. And they decided it was better for them to make that decision on themselves. You're teaching them it's okay to eat from the fruit. That's what you're saying. Kids make the decision. That's the doctrine that they're teaching. So we're both teaching something. We're both teaching our kids this is the way to walk in it. I'm just saying, I think it's better for my kids and myself and everybody that I know. I'd rather be under the authority of an eternal God rather than a temporal belief that has the shelf life of about five years around here, right? I mean, just look at how much the cultures, I mean, even in the last, the last election cycle, the stuff we never thought we'd be talking about. It's unbelievable. It, it's happening quicker than it's ever happened. Stuff that used to take a decade is taking about a year right now to get around to it. So you go, okay, we, here's the line, and then here's the line, and it keeps moving. You go, what is next? Oh, it's coming, right? It just keeps getting pushed out on this. So all these prophets, they are changing, or they are adapting, and they want to be, follow this, in the political leader's good standing. So they tell him whatever he wants to hear. Folks, this is not a political statement. This is a, I believe, a biblical one. That happens still today, that people love to be able to say, yeah, you're, you're doing great. Keep doing your thing. Here's a Bible verse we'll take out of context. Force your agenda. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We are behind you. And what's happening is they are selling their soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're selling their soul to something, right? They're selling their soul to, like, this is a political process. I'm falling in line, right, with whatever this looks like. Now, look what happens next, because... Micaiah is about to come on the scene, and you guys are going to love Micaiah. You're going to get t-shirts for, say, Micaiah 2020. Okay, here we go. Uh, Verse 13. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. Okay? That's called pressure, folks, right? This is what Micaiah says. As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. What? That discussion went quick, right? Hey, everybody in the room, 400 of your peers are all saying the king needs to do this. So you go in there and you just confirm it and we'll all be done. He goes, I don't listen to you or to him. I listen to God. I'm going to do what he tells me to do, right? Okay. So, and when he had come to the king, verse 15, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? 
And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it to the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Now, what's going on here? Well, if you look what happens in verse 17, Micaiah repeats exactly what those prophets have been saying. So, and then the way that the king responds, you can tell, apparently Micaiah thought it was okay to probably talk in a sarcastic tone. Because he'd been told at the door, you go in there and you tell them it's okay, right? So, so the words, literally, the prophets had said, have, go up and triumph, the Lord will give it to the hand of the king. So he walks in, all right, Micaiah, you tell the king standoffish. What do you have to say? Go up and triumph, for the Lord will give it to the hand of the king. He just literally going, okay, fine. You want me to walk along with what you want to say? And he goes, how many times am I going to tell you, you give me the truth. Stop playing around with me. And Micaiah goes, all right, I'll do that. Look what happens. Verse 17. And he said, I saw Israel, all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? So he stops in there. Told you. Told you he's going to do this. I knew it. I knew it. He was going to be against everything that I'm about. I told you. So my cast plan, okay, so you'll meet to the party line. Go up and do it, man. Do whatever's in your heart. I'll, I'll fall in love with everybody else. And he, and he just knew. And I don't know if Micaiah was smirking, if he sounded sarcastic. The king just knew. The king knew in his heart that Micaiah thought he should do something else. He goes, why do you keep lying to me? Look, we're all here. We're right on our thrones. Tell us what you think. And he says this. I see the people scattered like sheep without a shepherd because they've been following a bunch of wolves around here, basically. They've got no one to guide them, O king. They've got no prophet to stand up and shepherd them in the way they should go. Now, he says this in a room of 400 prophets, by the way, who are supposed to be shepherds. I see God's people shepherdless right now, wandering around, no direction, to the offense of the 400 men in that room. And as we see Micaiah in this moment, the consistent prophet refused to cater to those in authority by providing a popular or a pleasing message. He wasn't going to go there. There was nothing about what Micaiah was really concerned about that he thought he needed to give them a popular message. 400 other prophets are all saying this, or a pleasing message. O king, do whatever's in your heart because you're the best and I want you to treat me well. And, and so Micaiah sets his standard to say, I'm going to do what's right regardless of what the consequence is. I don't answer to the king. I don't answer to these other prophets who have sold their soul to the system. I answer to God. So I'm going to speak clearly on what God says. And this is what I see. God's people have no guide right now. No guide. Sheep without a shepherd. Jesus comes along and actually quotes that at some point, right? My people are like sheep without a shepherd. Nobody to guide them right now. Nobody to guide them. And you go, 400 men in the room, aren't they got them? Oh, they're got them off a cliff is what they're doing. Guiding them off of a cliff. And if we, if we interpret this into our own life, we have to realize this on the next page there. But you cannot truly follow Jesus in this culture and emerge unchallenged, right? You cannot truly follow Jesus in this culture or really any culture and emerge unchallenged. You are going to be labeled some of the worst things in the world, you're going to be seen as the enemy itself for following God these days. And deciding that you're going to say what God says and not what the culture says. You're going to say what God says regardless of what the politicians say. You're going to say what God says regardless of what the popularity says. And you're going to be challenged because of that. You are going to be said to be unloving, unkind, uh, out of touch with reality, following a backwards faith. You name it, you're going to hear that. And so... What takes place next is that um, 
Look, look what Micaiah says in verse 19. After, after uh, King Ahab says, I told you you were going to do this, verse 19. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his what? Now, don't miss it. Who is he talking to right now? Two kings sitting on their what? <laughs> I like what Micaiah just did right there. Let me tell you, boys, something in all your little splendor right now, sitting on your thrones. You put a throne out here just to talk to me. You're that insecure. You need to put a throne on the threshing floor. Okay, I get it. The two of you actually, because you, you understand this, these two guys, they, they operated in two different countries. But yet, just to have a conversation, we've got to put two thrones up for them because they're so insecure about their power. So he's looking at the two most powerful men around him uh, and around the area. And he says to them, sitting on their throne, surrounded by prophets and guards, whatnot, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the next thing that's going to happen, this is a little confusing, but let me, let me tell you what he's going to about to say, is that there is a discussion that's going on in heaven that's saying that basically there's a lying spirit that's trying to get to Ahab. A lying spirit. And basically, he's saying, all right, who's going to come up and, and basically, this, this, we know this is going to happen. That, that Ahab is going to hear a lying spirit telling him to go to battle even when he should not go to battle. Now, the words are is really confusing here, but let me, let me read it to you. It says, verse 20, the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Now this is a complicating few verses, folks. Okay, Because it appears at the front reading, that going, so is the Lord enticing one of his angels to lie? Basically, says this, <clears throat> Ahab wants to go down to battle because he wants to win this, but Ahab's judgment is upon him. And so there is a, it seems to me, because it says a spirit that's going there. Now, we also know that sometimes in heaven, not only do we see angels, but what else do we see? We see devil coming back and forth. Remember the book of Job? I don't know who's all. I don't know who is related to as this spirit. But most of the time, when there's a heavenly throne room, you got angels, and then there might be some intruders that come in to have a conversation. I don't know, but there's something that goes on that there is a lying spirit that comes in and says, "We're going to fill these prophets with the lie, encouraging King Ahab to go to battle, so he'll die. So we'll die." And so Micaiah, now follow this, because if you go, wait a minute, is God telling someone to lie? Apparently not, because what is he telling Micaiah to do? Tell him the truth. Micaiah's alarming him, this is going on. So this is God being gracious, even to King Ahab at this moment. I want to let you know that in this room, there is a spiritual dimension that there are people lying to you to get you killed. And God has allowed me to say to you, to wake you up to what's going on. There's a lying spirit here trying to get you killed right now. So if, if God wanted Ahab dead in that moment, do you think he'd tell Micaiah, hey, tell him to be careful? No. Micaiah's saying, hey, prideful man, I'll give you one more chance to turn around. I'm telling you, you go to battle, you're going to die. And King Ahab goes, oh, really? Huh. You think anybody can kill me? You think anybody can take me down? God can't even take me down. I'm going I'm, I'm to disguise myself. Look what happens next. Verse 24. This is great. All right. It says, Then Zedekiah the son of Chenanah came near 
and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on the day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. You keep him locked up in there until I come back from this battle unharmed, and I'll prove to him that I'm right. And this is what Micaiah says on the way out to jail. If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, here all you peoples. And he walks out. This is, this is, I wish this would be recorded on the nightly news. This is awesome stuff, right? Okay. Here's Micaiah saying, you go to battle and you're going to die. You go to battle and I promise you, you're going down. And he says, you stay in this prison so I walk back victorious. He goes, if I see your face again, the Lord has not spoken to you. And I want every prophet in here, all 400 of you to hear that word. All of it. And, and so here's Micaiah seeing these two men arrayed on their thrones. And what does he say he sees? God on his. Which is probably made of better stuff than what they had on that threshing floor that day, right? God's throne supersedes every other throne. And therefore, his followers should never bow to a lesser one. Micaiah refused to bow to a lesser throne of King Ahab or King Jehoshaphat because he had one king of whom he followed, and that was the Lord. So he wasn't going to bow to any other throne because he had seen the Lord high and lifted up. Kind of sounds like Isaiah, right? That we come alongside and we understand what he needs to do. Now, Micaiah says it, speaks it out, and everybody else hears it. Uh, at this time, Ahab is confident that he's not going to die in the battle. But what takes place here, look at verse 29, because this is how brave he is. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. But you wear your robes, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I'm not going to look like a king. But Jehoshaphat, you look like the king, okay? Because Micaiah said, I'm going to die. And, and so therefore, maybe the army is going to be looking for the king. You stay in your kingly robes. But I'm just going to be like a random guy, Okay. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. We're going after Ahab. Hunt him down, fight him. So Ahab's going, oh, I got this, I got this. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot, and about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. Now let me just stop there for a second. Isn't that interesting? Hey, they're not going to find me. I'll disguise myself. They're looking for the king. They won't find me there. Jehoshaphat, you be the king. They go for it, and then all of a sudden they determine it's not Jehoshaphat. The battle changes, and I just love the way that the word says it in verse 34. A certain man, random arrow, sent up in the air, stuck right in the opening spot of King Ahab's armor. Because Ahab thought he was untouchable. And God goes, I can get you there if I need to. Now, apparently, Ahab thought there's no way that they could take me out, and yet they did. And so God's justice is seen even though 
Did God warn King Ahab about that battle? Oh, yeah. Did the prophet Micaiah warn Ahab, don't go to that battle? Yeah. Did he listen? No. Because prideful leaders think that nobody can tell them what to do. And he was going to determine, he was going to listen to those who were commending him and sounding religious doing it versus the person who was telling them the truth. And what happened to him? He died as a result. Died as a result of that battle. And I think what I love about Micaiah in this is that um, Micaiah, even though obviously it's, it, it can be seen, he doesn't necessarily respect the king so much. <laughs> he knows where his allegiance is ultimately. And, and we should honor our authorities and surrender to our God, but not the other way around. And if I think through what's happening with these other 400 prophets, instead of honoring the authorities and surrendering to God, you know what they were doing? They were surrendering to the authority and honoring their God. Whatever my authority, whatever my king, whatever the political party wants me to do, I'll surrender and go along with whatever they say. I will give up all rights to be biblical and faithful, and I'll honor God in the process, and I'll talk about him and, and give him props, but ultimately my allegiance is to a, well, it's to a politician. It was to a, 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 an agenda of the leader. Now, here's the thing if we talk about how this lays out for us in our last few moments here together. Um, I think that we have to understand that in the position as we look at this story of Micaiah, and I know this is not one that's most, um, it's not the more, more popular uh, stories in the Bible. I've absolutely loved it the last few months studying it. It's such a powerful word about how this stuff relates to us. But I think that it weighs to apply this into our life. Here's a few things. That whenever a political allegiance overshadows a biblical mandate, we need to examine the real object of our faith. These 400 prophets allowed a political allegiance to overshadow what was a biblical mandate, what they knew that God was showing them to do. And so they allowed their allegiance to a system, to a king, to a politician, to triumph over what they wanted to do overshadows a biblical mandate that we have to examine the real object of our faith. And so even when I say that they had to allow that... that um, political allegiance to overshadow a biblical mandate. I said triumph over it. Let me just tell you how difficult this has been the last few weeks. I don't know why. Every time I want to say that, I go, don't let a political allegiance trump the biblical mandate. I'm always worried people are going to be thinking I'm trying to say something that I'm not, okay? I am trying to say on every side of this, but, but you realize that there's those two things, right? There, there's political allegiance and biblical mandate. Have you seen this get out of whack for people, out of order? Where it goes, okay, let me bend more to what the political party's doing rather than what God's doing. And we need to examine the real object of our faith. Folks, I am very concerned that there are many um, professing Christians in our country that the real object of their faith is in a candidate rather than a king. That their hope is in getting a person in office rather than God being on his throne. And sometimes, I, if I'm honest with you, I think that there are many Christians who we put more hope in getting the right person in certain offices than we do get missionaries on the field. If only we'll get these people, then all of a sudden the Great Commission will be... No, it won't. Another politician will be in office, and maybe they hold conservative values, and maybe they don't, and maybe they really are true in their faith, and maybe they're using... Who knows? But I don't want, as a follower of Jesus, to think, that when Jesus was, being, was ascended to heaven, that he said, go therefore and put my people into public office. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's what the commandment was. 
And sometimes we, I think, reverse this, and so therefore we get a political allegiance, and then we, we change what we believe and think to sort of align with it. And I believe that many believers have sacrificed their integrity on the altar of expediency. To be able to get what we want or how we want or how fast we want, that sometimes we sacrifice integrity to get an agenda passed, to get something done. And sometimes has the church lost credibility along people because we have not stood up for integrity across the board? Yes. We um, criticize people of whom we do not agree with, and we turn a blind eye when the people that we do support do the same thing. I'm so tired of every side of the aisle doing this. Oh, well, so-and-so did the same thing. Y'all never said anything about that. That's not an argument. Okay? That, that's just that's, that you're trying to put up a blind. I mean, like, it just it baffles me. It's kind of like the whole right now, I think it's the funniest thing. I know there's people, all kinds of stuff, uh, opinions on this. Should we nominate a Supreme Court justice this year or should we wait to the election? And I just am so amazed that the other party is going, we wouldn't do this if we were. Yet, yes, you would. Every party would. And you may agree with it or not agree with it. You may agree with it because, well, this is a good candidate. I understand that. But don't lie to me. Anybody who was in position authority right now would do exactly what President Trump is doing. We're going to try to get it through real quick, right? Would the Democrats do that if they were in office? Absolutely they would. So don't act. I hate when one side's like, we wouldn't. Yes, you would. <laughs> yes, you would. It's, this is how this thing works, right? And, and so a lot of times, though, there are people that can, I think, change what they believe is integrity because they're trying to push their agenda and they, they act like they wouldn't do certain things. And they're always trying to put a smoke screen up. Well, this person did this. Let's address the real issues, right? Let's address the issues. Um, I believe in the midst of it and all the political fights that are going on, our culture has wrongfully polarized conviction and compassion against each other. Uh, I shared this a few weeks ago here at uh, Rocky Creek, and I'll say this again, that our culture, we have wrongfully polarized conviction and compassion. I said it, uh, I forgot how many weeks ago it was now, when someone came up and said, you were a lot more courteous than I would have been in your designation of what you said, but I agree with it. And what I said was, as a stereotype, which I know are not always helpful, right, okay? But as a stereotype, most people would see the Republican side of this country, the conservative side of this country, as people with conviction. They have a standard of what is right and what is wrong. They have a moral compass of they say, this is the line. And the conservative movement is seen as something that is outdated by those who do not agree with it. Is that fair? We have conviction. These people have conviction. This is what needs to happen, right? And yet, what so many people are being turned off by that conviction is that there is no compassion present when they say it. So I'll give you an example, okay? I want you to speak real straight home. I believe that most people in this church would believe what I believe regarding the biblical ethic regarding heterosexuality and homosexuality. I don't think we have a lot of disagreements on that, okay? But what I see is that there is a challenge when conservatives, Republicans, whatever, make a stance against homosexuality and show no compassion when they do it. They sound mean, uh, ugly in their spirit, and almost condemning to people who felt a certain way ever since they can remember. And you know what's shocking if you talk to someone who feels like that they are biblically justified to a life of homosexuality? You know what is shocking to them? When someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I've always felt this way. I've always had an attraction this way. And I go this, I believe you. And they go, oh, you believe me? Yeah. 
I sure do. They're like, so God made me this way. It's not what I said. I said, I believe that you've always felt that way because everybody has sin that we're born into. Sin manifests itself in different ways. Some of you have struggled with alcoholism in your life. Some of you never struggled with that way in your life. Why is that? I have no idea. We all struggle in different ways. And when you stop and you show compassion to somebody and say, I believe that you felt that way, but I don't believe it's still right. It's kind of confusing. They don't know what to do with it. I say, I believe some people have struggled with so much heterosexual sin, but they cannot act on every urge they have or else they'd be in trouble too. I believe that some people have an anger problem. And if you act on every anger problem, are you going to be in trouble in this life? Yeah, you will. And so when you stop and you can have a conviction about a thing and yet show compassion, people do not know what to do with it. On the other side, stereotypically, which once again I know is not always helpful, liberals, Democrats, whatever you would name it, there's also another term right now that's happening in the last couple of years called the religious left. Have you heard that terminology? It's people who are working from a religious, religious standpoint using the Bible, but very left of what the liberal kind of agenda, but they're not being anti-church or anti-God or anti-scriptures. They're just anti-certain version of it. So the religious left is a growing movement of people who are doing things in the name of Jesus. And what are they all about? Compassion. Compassion to those who have, who have been marginalized by being a homosexual. Compassion for the refugees who just want a better opportunity at a life. Uh, compassion for those who got started at a disadvantage due to uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. Compassion. And so they go, we just want to help everybody. So if you feel broken and busted, especially by those mean people at the church that have been ugly to you, we accept you. We love you. You're just like one of us. That's a lot better message. And guess what? It's a magnet to those people who feel isolated. Just drawing them in, drawing them in, drawing them in. What's the problem with people who have that kind of compassion? No conviction. There's no moral line. They can't say, thus saith the Lord anymore. Anything's accepted. And so right now, this is accepted, but what happens if the line keeps getting drawn even further? So you're starting to see some on the left going, ooh, now I'm okay with this, but that's too far right there. How far is too far, folks? It continues to move. So this is why I believe... There's so many people on the uh, conservative side in our country right now that are seen as conviction with no compassion, and so many people on the liberal side that I believe are seen with compassion with no conviction. What is the answer? It's the answer of Jesus in John 1.14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. It's both, folks. It's not one or the other. Um, Grace is... Giving someone what they do not deserve. If you give someone what always what they don't deserve and never make them walk the line, what is that called? It's actually called being a grandparent, but you know what I mean. If you always give them something that they do not deserve, right, and never give them lies, never give them discipline, right, this is, hey, we want to bless you and love you and give you whatever you want. No rules here. Is that good to them? No. Is it good to be so hard? These are the rules. These are the rules. You can't mess up or else. You can't, you're out. You're out. That's truth, no grace, or grace and no truth. And Jesus had both. And apparently, they weren't enemies of each other. So if we're to live that way, we've got to figure out how to do this. We have a major problem in the church if we stereotype compassion as heresy and conviction as bigotry. In our world today, what we have started to do in the church, in some churches, we stereotype when someone is compassion. That's called heresy. And when we start stereotyping conviction, that's bigotry. Let me make sure you understand what I'm saying there. 
Um, because there are so many left-leaning movements happening that's called the social gospel or social justice right now, if anybody is compassionate towards someone, whether it's a racial issue, a gender issue, equality issue, a refugee issue, if you show compassion to that person, it's seen as, oh, you don't follow the real gospel. you got a social gospel. We have made compassion what I would say is heresy. Literally, there are churches that if you do anything compassion-related, give someone food, give someone shelter, oh, that's a false gospel, social gospel. You're just trying to address their needs. And they failed to realize that sometimes Jesus met physical needs before he met the spiritual ones. Hey, Jesus said, yeah, I'll feed you. And guess what? I'm also going to feed you something more important. It was both. It wasn't one or the other. But sometimes we see it's that pendulum swinging, right? We see all these people doing, giving out a cold water in the name of Jesus, never giving the gospel. So what do we do? Just give them Jesus. Don't give them a cup of cold water. Maybe we could give both, right? Maybe we could feed their souls and feed their bodies. Maybe we could possibly do both. The other side, the complete opposite side, they stereotype conviction as bigotry. If you hold to a biblical ethic, you are nothing but an outdated bigot. How dare you follow those rules? That was way back in Bible times. We can't accept to follow that. God's progressive. He listens to your heart. He knows everything. Is, am I, this is true. You see this, right? It's one or the other. You can't, and I'm just saying, we have to get back to to the consistent mentality of this. That a consistent Christian navigates life with unwavering conviction and undeniable compassion. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to be as a follower of Jesus. That's where I want to be as a pastor of a church. I want to be consistent that there is unwavering conviction. If you look at my life, you know where I stand. You may not like it. You may not agree with me, but you know where I stand. It's clear. But also that if you were to look at my life, that there's undeniable compassion in my life. That when you see me, yet I stand on truth, but I'm also willing to be kind to those who don't believe what I believe. And folks, this is, I believe, the way of Jesus, and we want to get in one camp or the other. And I think the way is both. I think the way is both. So somebody walked into Rocky Creek and was going to vote completely different than you. I mean, completely different. Do you have in your heart the margin to accept that person as a brother or a sister? Uh, What's the reasoning behind it, right? What if the reasoning behind it is that they have lived a life that's been in a completely different neighborhood than you, on a different set of values than you, and your top ticket items on the, the agenda of the vote is not their top items? Uh... I believe most people say everybody's probably a one or two uh, issue voter. One or two things you really care for, and that's the way you're going to vote, right? And there are some people, well, you may be, I I hear people all the time that say abortion is that item for me. Uh, Marriage and gender beliefs is that issue for me. Some is the economy is the issue. Some people it's racial uh, separation and, and reconciliation. Whatever it is, that agenda drives it, and we almost can't look at the other stuff. That's typical. And so what happens is we have to be very, very careful that if somebody came in with a different set of lens, can you accept them as a brother or sister? Or do you go, oh, no, 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 they're not a part of us because of this. Can you show unwavering conviction and undeniable compassion? To do this, I want to echo the words of Jesus and apply it to the situation to say this. Don't gain the political world by forfeiting your spiritual soul. Don't get caught into one of these traps where you feel like you're stuck in one of these systems that you gain the political world. Um, and yet you forfeit your spiritual soul. Micaiah is a hero for me. 
even though I was not as familiar with his story recently, but I believe it's a great piece to say. Apparently he was compassionate enough to King Ahab to tell him the truth, but he was gonna tell him the truth anyway. And I believe that as people of faith, we've got to do the same as well. So Father, I pray tonight that the pressure of popularity to always to do and to say what we think is gonna be popular and pleasing to the masses, ultimately we want to be faithful to you. Help us to be people of compassion and conviction as we go up from this place tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you all very much.